This is Eric Morrow, and welcome to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Well, this is the Morrow-only show this week. Uh, my uh, partner and co-host, uh, Dr. Cogley, is away uh, at a conference uh, and uh, is not able to join us this week, but uh, that's okay. Sometimes that happens with our busy schedules during the academic semester, and we're not able to uh, bring you a show. Usually we try to have guests with us, uh, but uh, this week uh, really so much is happening that it gives us the opportunity to kind of reflect and, and, and really uh uh, do a status check in terms of our engagement and understanding of what's going on around us in the world of politics. Uh, but before we do that, uh, before we look back at the week and look at all of the things that happened, uh, I do want to encourage you to follow us on Facebook. That's Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Uh, to download your at wherever you get your podcasts. To follow us on SoundCloud, if uh, that's a good option for you, uh, each week as our episodes are uploaded after they air. Sundays at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. So thank you again for joining us uh, this week or listening to this by SoundCloud or podcast. And I really want to start out by taking a, a just a reality check of the week that we've had in politics. We can look back and it, it really started on Monday with the Iowa caucuses and that story has continued on throughout the week. It followed on Tuesday with the State of the Union address uh, and all the drama and, and theater and, and politics that were infused in that event. We saw the ending of the impeachment trial on Wednesday, uh, which set out a, off another round uh, of, uh, of, of kind of news uh, items related to back and forth between Democrats and Republicans and the, and the president. Uh, the next day, uh, the, the prayer breakfast, uh, which became political very quickly, uh, followed by an event at the White House uh, in terms of uh, celebrating the end of impeachment uh, and, as the president refers to it, the uh, impeachment hoax and leading to his acquittal. And then on Friday, the New Hampshire debate, where we now turn again to the next, uh, really the first primary uh, in the process. Uh, the Iowa caucuses are very different, as we explained on last week's show. Uh, and now we move into the uh, the actual primaries and New Hampshire being an open primary. But that preceded by a debate among the current Democratic presidential hopefuls. So really, what a week. Uh, what a week in which uh, we, we for, for many, if you follow this, if you were checking in news, if you were reading each day and looking at some of this, just really overwhelming in terms of the amount of political dynamics that were going on throughout the week. And, and that's really what I want to focus on today is, is look at some of the highs and lows of this, uh, really in how it reflects upon uh, how we do politics, uh, how this reflects in terms of the current challenges and, and the things that are being emphasized uh, within politics in our country, and really how those connect with uh, democratic values. Uh, now, I start there because uh, it, uh, this past week on uh, Thursday, there was an article published in the New York Times uh, by David Brooks, or an editorial. He does a weekly column there. And in the editorial, uh, he talks about, it's really entitled, How Trump Wins Again. Are Democrats Going to Give This Election Away? And I focused on this article because uh, not only the content and, and, and what his focus is and things that we've talked about on this show that that may lead to uh, Trump winning a second term in November, uh, but also because of, of the way he ends the article. Uh, so in, in in this column that that he did, he, he he's emphasizing and showing here uh, the the rise in impeach. Uh, I'm sorry, the rise in approval numbers, uh, which are at their highest level for President Trump. Uh, the impeachment really never taking hold uh, across the rank-and-file Democrats, uh, as it's shown in many studies that have been done, that that among most Democrats, let alone independents and republics, Republicans, that impeachment's never really been a major uh, topic of conversation. Uh, there, there's been so much more in terms of domestic issues, foreign policy issues, so much more that people are looking at uh, beyond the impeachment to the general election. We're also looking at the uh, economy and, and how the new jobs report that was out this week, that, that unemployment continues to stay low, that earnings are ri rising, uh, that uh, in terms of the, the ec economic stability, as we pointed out before, and how it contributes uh, to election victories, 
we also saw this week, uh, now as we begin to see through the primary process, that that no one in the Democratic Party, as, as Brooks point, points out, is a transcender. No one is, is stepping out in front of the pack, really, in terms of public support. And th- this is very challenging at this point because, uh, as uh, my co-host Nathaniel has predicted, this may lead to a uh, brokered convention. We may go into the Democratic convention uh, not really having a clear front runner, and thus the challenges uh, of of selecting a uh, a finalist, someone who will run against Trump in November. The more confusion there is, and we saw that confusion added to in Iowa this week, uh, the more challenges there are going to be for a Democratic nominee uh, to get through this primary process, through the convention, uh, and to win uh, in November. Part of this is the internal dynamics of the party. Uh, with uh, Sanders voters uh, not fully supported behind a Democratic nominee. As we saw in 2016, uh, there was a good percentage of Sanders voters or supporters who did not vote Democratic but voted for President Trump. And so that, again, that contentiousness, those challenges within the party uh, could lead to challenges for the Democratic nominee uh, in November. Uh, All of this, again, Brooks is highlighting, but also to say that in the State of the Union address uh, this past week, President Trump outlined his strategy, or at least revealed his strategy, uh, for his election campaign and to win uh, the election in November. And that is a a core question. Brooks puts it this way. Is capitalism basically working or is it basically broken? Uh, This goes back to that that old adage about people voting from their wallets. Uh, If they're in good financial shape, if things are going well, their pay is increasing, the economy is stable, jobs are stable, then the the tendency is or the, 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 the data just shows us from the past that it's often easier for a president. Uh, to win re-election. Uh, that's not always the case, but but in this case, with all of these other factors, it looks like at this point in the race, at this point in the general election cycle, that it is coming down uh, to a question of, are you better off? Are you getting better? Would you be better with another person as president than you are now? And having people really ask that question uh, in terms of the economy, uh, economics, uh, is capitalism ba- basically working or is it basically broken? And that, that's a challenge because with the economy doing so well, uh, the messaging by some of the Democratic candidates uh, has been of, of one of questioning that. Just a few items here that, that uh, Brooks mentions. Uh, Joe Biden has said, I don't think Americans really do like the economy look at the middle-class neighborhoods. The middle class is getting killed. The middle class is getting crushed. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, this economy is not working for us, for most of us. Elizabeth Warren, a rising GDP, rise in corporate profits is not being felt by millions of families across the country. Now, some of that may very well be true, but how does that translate into voters? How does that translate into the general sentiment and views about the economy that people have, and then how that will will influence or impact whether or not they want to change uh, in the White House. Brooks ends this, and this is where I want to point to and then lead on to kind of look back and reflect on this week. He ends this uh, column by saying, all of this suggests that Democrats should acknowledge that the economy has done well since the Obama recovery in 2009. They should argue that this is the time to take advantage of prosperity to begin a moral and social revival. This is the year to run a values campaign, one that champions policies to make America more socially mobile, caring, and independent. In 2020, running on economic gloom or class war probably won't work. Now, choose this and and really look at this, focus in on it, uh, because he talks about values here. And my experience this past week in engaging with all of these events and, and the demeanor of politicians, the, the, the theater that has gone along with it, and, and really the engagement in uh, trying to demean each other to look at the other side as evil or dishonest, and, and, and I'm saying this, that, that both sides are guilty of this. It, it really is uh, dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous to 
to values, to, to the values that are at the core of our democratic society and of the way that we have governed ourselves and what really should be championed in terms of our American system, not through uh, the, the, the actions and the words uh, that show this high level of polarization and partisanship, uh, but should, should show to the rest of the world why what we have here has worked uh, with all its flaws, with all its challenges, with all of its struggles. Uh, now, with this and talking about values, let's define these for a moment because I want you to think about these in the context of what you've seen and heard. And this is what really, uh, really challenged me to be concerned about what's going on in political life in our country. Uh, as part of the uh, uh, civic engagement effort that we have here at Tarleton with many of our classes and with our students and trying them to to get more involved in order for us to continue to have a thriving democracy. Uh, the, the values that we look at with that are, are very critical and important in understanding how we engage and how we view others, even with our great diversity, others that are different than us. And so the, some of the values that we're talking about here are dignity, humanity, decency, honesty, curiosity, imagination, wisdom, courage, community, participation, stewardship, resourcefulness, and hope. So these are, these are values that are, are very much hallmarks of an American identity, of an American uh, approach to uh, how we view the role of government in our lives and its purpose within our society. Uh, it puts a strong emphasis on putting the person first, okay? government by the people and for the people. The, the, the people come first, and government is there to serve uh, for the common good of the people, to, to provide uh, the security, uh, the safety, uh, the resources, the, the collaboration and the use of resources uh, to, to create an environment and a society in which people can live as freely as possible. Uh, I don't know how to put it in more uh, uh, simple terms, uh, but to say that these values are critical to that. Uh, we see these, these values throughout the history of our country, not to say that always politicians, uh, leaders, uh, people have, have ascribed to these or have put these first and foremost. But I think what we've seen this past week uh, is, is not something that, that, as we see some politicians say, they hear uh, people use these pejorative words in describing one another as dishonest or evil or so on, and then they say, oh, that's so disappointing, or they shouldn't say that, or um, that's just unacceptable. Uh, I th what, I've, what I've seen and heard and, and what concerns me the most is, is that response as well, not just what people are saying, but that the response is not, wow, that, that's dangerous, because that is not who we are as Americans, that's not, that doesn't reflect the values that are important to us uh, in terms of our thriving democracy. In fact, it, it, it's, it threatens a thriving democracy. It threatens it because the way we do politics has turned now more to about, uh, uh, more about valuing uh, winning or being in control or power. Okay, those, are, those are concerns that our founders had in putting limitations on government and wanting to, to hold it at a distance, uh, to be skeptical about it, to limit it uh, to, to a certain degree uh, so that it did not threaten uh, freedom. But when you have this, that the people who at all cost or at, at any opportunity uh, will uh, look at other people and say, well, they're, they're not even who we are. They're not even almost at the point of saying they're not they're un-American or um, they're they're uh, uh, they know they're doing wrong uh, they're trying to harm their country uh, all of this this uh, language uh, really betrays those values and and really is and we should call it that it is dangerous and so here at the at this first segment of the show what I wanted to do was to go back and look at these events this week and I want to point out some of these things because we we need to reflect on this we need to reflect on really what we value uh, as Americans and what we we should see uh, in in our politics and, and governance uh, but also uh, really think about the challenges in navigating that, because certainly the initial response for some, for many people, uh, is to take sides. It's to see what happened, 
to listen to who, whoever you listen to to get your news and information uh, and to, to take sides uh, and, and begin to ad- adopt the language uh, that others are using. Uh, that, that's, that does not uh, encourage a level of engagement uh, as we like to say on this show, civility and depth that that honors civility, uh, in that we all are uh, share a, a goal and a purpose. We share a, a love of our country, uh, uh, we a love of our freedom first and foremost, and our willingness then to still hold a level of respect for the other person, even though we may find disagreement. But then to work that out in the way in which we govern ourselves and not to 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 move to such a low level uh, in terms of politics and, and the behavior that people have toward each other, uh, that that becomes uh, so dominant uh, in our political process. And and really, that that's what we have seen in a just in a short glimpse uh, through these events of the last week. So we start on Monday with the Iowa caucuses. Now, you say, how would a Democratic caucus in Iowa Uh, be a challenge to uh, our values uh, in terms of of our democracy. But one of the things that that this process, as flawed as it was, is the challenges that they had uh, with recording votes and and declaring a winner, all of that became politicized very quickly uh, on both sides. You had Democratic candidates stepping out early without uh, the re-canvas and without uh, assurance of where all this ended up and claiming victory, very political move, uh, because this, as we talked about last week, Iowa, the caucuses in Iowa are very uh, significant in that way. They're not significant in terms of delegates to the National Convention. Uh, it's not significant in the great scheme of all of this throughout the primary process. It's significant because of the amount of attention that is received by those who win and those who lose. And so what we saw were candidates. Uh, One of them was Pete Buttigieg, who really came out before there was any significant release of data uh, claiming victory. Now, in the end, it looks like, at least where things stand now, that he is one of the winners, sharing that that win with uh, Bernie Sanders. But the the challenge there was just... uh, uh, being ahead of this and not allowing the process to work. Uh, Even so, on the other side, the criticism that was leveled at the Democratic Party in Iowa uh, by President Trump himself, who was talking about uh, rigged elections and about uh, how this reflected back on 2016 and what Democrats tried to do to defeat him. Uh, All of this raises the alarm. It it raises uh, skepticism about our political process. Uh, A lot of this directs people, and this is what you saw maybe some in the media talking about election interference uh, from overseas, uh, something that we're we're starting to address a little bit, but we're way behind the curve when you look at what states and what the federal government are doing uh, to try to to protect uh, our election process. Uh, But it, it really in the minds of of people can bring into question uh, why we do things the way we do or to question, okay, well, they're doing it in a subversive and illegitimate way, uh, whereas we would not do that. Uh, Really questioning uh, the the, the honesty and acceptance of of a system and a manner of doing things that tries to get things right and, and to go through the process that it takes. I mean, that's very challenging in a culture that we live in today where everyone wants uh, immediate uh, gratification. They want immediate answers. We want we want to know who won. Uh, and that was not possible uh, in the way that this process was done and the snafus, the problems with technology uh, and the, the inability to overcome those in a short period of time. Uh, but to, to get out there in front of it uh, and to, to then qu- uh, question uh, the process itself uh, without having clear results uh, really challenges outcomes. It, it raises questions in people's mind about, well, do we even need the process? Uh, it begins to it, it, what it does is it says, well, it delegitimizes the process because if my candidate said this, then that must be true. So there must be something wrong if another outcome ends up being affirmed. Uh, so let's say that Buddha Judge is out in front of this and he says, well, well, we won. And then it comes back to say, well, no, uh, you really didn't. You shared the win or or you actually did not come in first place. Uh, that that creates challenges for some people. 
uh, and or it's cast in that way to say, oh, well, there must still be something wrong. We still have to to question this uh, because uh, 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 the outcome is not what uh, he said it would be. Now, that that does not mean that we shouldn't question process and we shouldn't try to make this better, that we know mistakes are going to be made and those mistakes should be corrected. I'm not I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that it's really playing the politics uh, over the value of of how we uh, conduct our elections, we conduct ourselves within a community uh, to get the the outcome uh, through the process of voting, or in this case, caucusing and then reporting those results. Uh, so th- we started out the week again, very politically charged. We moved to Tuesday, and it, it even ramped up another level. Uh, we've all seen or heard the stories about uh, the State of the Union, uh, not just about the speech itself, which some have said on both sides that this was one of the better speeches of President Trump. My question would be, these are always now in modern in the modern era, they're not about the the necessarily the state of things in a realistic way of looking at, hey, what are the challenges before us and how do we address them? These have become much more campaign speeches that are very political in and of themselves. Uh, and it, it, it just accentuates the politics of it, not so much uh, the, the, the challenges, the, the need to solve problems, uh, the need certainly to, to, to champion success, uh, but to look beyond that to say, okay, what do we need to do? What's ahead of us as a country in addressing the critical issues that are there? But we also saw the drama, the, the, the uh, re- either refusal or, or not seeing the handshake offered by Pelosi to Trump, uh, Pelosi standing up at the end and ripping uh, the uh, por- portion of the speech in half, uh, all of this political drama uh, that, again, accentuated uh, partisanship. Uh, it accentuated uh, the uh, almost uh, the hatred that is there, the, the polarization that is there within uh, our branches of government uh, that are very, again, detrimental and very dangerous uh, because of what it demonstrates uh, to the country as a whole. All it does, those things do, is contribute to uh, that polarization. It contributes to that idea that, well, we cannot work with anyone who is different or on the other side or in the other party uh, in trying to find uh, solutions to the challenges that we have today. And so the, the State of the Union just ramped that up even more in preparing for what I think was was one of the major points of the week as we've been leading up to the end of this impeachment trial, uh, which has been ongoing for a number of months. Uh, so on Wednesday, here we, we have that. It uh, do, doesn't stop. The news cycle continues. It just switches to another uh, focus. And the end of the impeachment trial uh, brought a number of different elements uh, that all along the way had been very polarizing and very political, uh, as we saw with uh, the, the presentations that were made and then the comments that were being made both by the president and by uh, members of both parties. Uh, but we also had this uh, kind of storyline that was running in the middle of that, uh, and that was about uh, Mitt Romney uh, voting against the first article of impeachment uh, on the abuse of power. And immediately after that, or as soon as he said that he was going to vote before the vote in this way, before the vote was taken, uh, began receiving uh, a significant amount of criticism from all over the country. And then, of course, what would follow even from the president uh, himself. Now, members of his own party in the Senate uh, were uh, a little uh, were not as critical. Uh, and, and you heard this from Mitch McConnell on down. Uh, Mitch McConnell uh, had said that he was surprised and disappointed by Romney's decision, but he said, I think Senator Romney has been largely supportive of most everything we've tried uh, to accomplish. Uh, you had others who had said that, uh, that, that the, answered the calls to dismiss Romney from the Republican Party, a call that was made by Donald Trump Jr., uh, that uh, they just dismissed it. They said, no, that, that's not going to happen. We don't agree with that. On one hand, I think this reflects the challenge that all senators had if they took this process seriously, no matter which side of the aisle they were on, uh, that this was a very difficult process. This was very challenging in that uh, uh, it was very partisan. Uh, there is seems consensus throughout the Senate that some of the things that had happened, uh, the, f- the phone call, 
of uh, certain ways in which the Trump administration approached this whole issue related to the foreign aid to Ukraine and uh, the investigations of corruption, uh, some focused on on the Bidens and on uh, Hunter Biden, that 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 there were some challenges here and that there was certainly concern uh, that some of these things should not have happened. It was not the, the president shouldn't have acted or done things the way that he did. And I think we'll see more come to light in the months ahead that will add to that and will certainly contribute to that view whether that rose to the level of impeachment or not, that has always been the central question, and Republicans were not in agreement on that. They did not see that uh, this rose to that level that the president should be removed from office. So I think part of that response uh, recognized that this was very challenging for all of them and for one of them to vote and uh, uh, for abuse of power to express himself uh, in the way that he did, uh, it it really um, uh, I think it it, it shows that the the significance of the process and its impact on all of them. But you had many people, including the president uh, that follows, uh, that 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 attacked Romney, uh, that that called for uh, action against him, um, and he immediately went on the attack. So here we have this happening on Wednesday with people responding to what Romney did. Uh, the very next morning, the president attends a prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C., and the prayer breakfast, although it's said that it was a prayer breakfast, was uh, not so much about prayer, uh, but much more about uh, Trump emphasizing his uh, acquittal and really going on the attack, as he would all day on Thursday, uh, against his people he perceived as his enemies. Uh, he, he begins, he comes in, he begins this uh, meeting at which Nancy Pelosi is also in attendance. As everybody knows, my family, our great country, and your president have been put through a terrible ordeal by some very dishonest and corrupt people. They have done everything possible to destroy us and by so doing very badly hurt our nation. They know what they are doing is wrong, but they put themselves far ahead of our great country. Now, I, I certainly have challenges with politicizing uh, what was meant to be an event to bring religious leaders together uh, and and that's what some of the many of these events have become now they're, they're much more about uh, the politics and the, the optics of it than it is about uh, necessarily the substance uh, but also you had here the president using this opportunity uh, to criticize uh, people in their use of faith so directing this both at Pelosi and at Romney uh, the, the president said, I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong, nor do I like people who say, I pray for you when they know that that's not so. So many people have been hurt, and we can't let that go on. Now, th- this creates a, very much a challenge, I think, going back to our discussion about values. Uh, not only is this directly fly in the face of religious liberty as a value uh, that we have in our country, uh, but it is questioning people's motivation and how they apply that faith. Uh, and that that really is uh, dangerous in terms of our democracy uh, because faith is so visible, it's so present for so many people. Certainly there are debates about how you should enter the public square and how faith should inform your engagement in politics and policy. But But we've rarely had questions about uh, demeaning someone for using uh, faith for making decisions or or having, as Romney said, his his oath to God in terms of the Constitution. Well, there there are elements of faith in there, but that that's an oath that anyone in public office takes uh, in terms of their commitment to uh, America, in terms of the the ideals that it was founded upon, the principles that are enshrined in our Constitution, and the values uh, that we uphold. And so the, this 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 again, this this caustic uh, rhetoric, this uh, labeling people as dishonest and corrupt uh, does not uh, emphasize community. It does not emphasize 
participation and a willingness to try to say, let we may not agree on on the means or we may not agree on necessarily the short-term outcomes, but we are guided by values that help us work together in spite of our differences uh, to overcome uh, contemporary challenges. And so I think that's where where Brooks is, is where his focus is. I think it's coming back and trying to bring this debate back to being one about uh, and appealing to people, uh, not not on e- economic issues. I mean, that, that's certainly going to be a part of the mix. All of these er- policy areas are going to be a part of the debates and the focus on uh, the upcoming election and laying out platforms and so on. Uh, but but what we see lacking here in in the debates, in the discussions, in this exchange back and forth, whether it's tearing up a speech at the end of the State of the Union or refusing to shake a hand or questioning someone uh, in terms of the, the role of faith in their lives, I think all of that, it flies against in the, uh, those values. It, it, it undermines uh, those values that are critical uh, to our country and critical to a thriving democracy. Uh, that's that's the, the looking back over this past week, what was very challenging for me. And so for our listeners, I wanted to give this context in order to kind of wrap this segment up and to put it in perspective of how do, how do we engage with this? How, how do we navigate uh, these um, uh, th- this environment, this very caustic political environment uh, where uh, it's becoming so polarized and it has such an impact on people and the way they they not just how they perceive each other in terms of, of party affiliation, but their even their willingness to accept the other person uh, with respect, uh, uh, with a level of dignity as a human being, uh, to say that 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 we're willing to work together, or even to 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 come back to ask the question: is, if the platform for uh, President Trump is about is capitalism working or not? Okay, that that's one thing. But then we we also have to ask ourselves: Do we value capitalism with all of its challenges? It certainly has created a level of economic freedom and prosperity. So we're not questioning that. But when it comes to working in government to find uh, solutions to our challenges, do we value capitalism more than humanity, more than human dignity? more than our sense of community and our ability to accept each other and to try to work together uh, to, to find solutions. So, so how do we navigate this? Now, I just want to close this segment with this. I, I think there's some critical things that each one of us has to understand and engage with uh, uh, to, to really see through all of the political drama that is going on, all of the, the things that are, are, are very much attacking our values to one, first of all, understand uh, the political elements and recognize them for what they are, recognizing that an act of tearing up a speech or not shaking a hand or or even the rhetoric itself to understand, okay, this is very highly politically charged. It, it will have an impact. It'll influence public opinion. You can't ignore it. But, but we have to look beyond in terms of our engagement. We have to look beyond that to what is really happening, what is the substance uh, that we can hold on to. And that's really the second point. We have to find what is substantial. We have to read. We have to engage. We have to listen to different opinions. Uh, we have to, to know our history. We have to uh, really uh, work at, at, at kind of questioning and evaluating and analyzing in a way uh, that leads us to, to informed answers uh, that then guide our engagement into politics. The third is respect. Uh, we need to bring back a level of civility uh, to uh, uh, what we're doing in politics. This is It's sad to see that we've come to a day again, and we've had this happen throughout the history of our country, but more so at this point in time where respect for each other and civility within the political arena uh, is, is being lost. Fourth, we have to put problem-solving before ideology. Uh, ideology may guide how we see the solutions and the role of government in in solving problems, but the focus needs to be on solving the problems, meeting the challenges, uh, not on that ideology dominates and and we sacrifice our ability to solve problems or to find solutions uh, on the altar of ideology. And then finally, uh, we need to 
to, to affirm our values. If we don't do this, if each of us individually do not do this, then there's not much hope uh, for our democracy in the future. If we don't identify and understand these values and what has uh, made America the country that it is, what is its strength, uh, what is its really witness to the, to the world about the value of democracy, uh, are these values. Uh, and what we're seeing in politics is the sacrificing of these values in order to win, in order to achieve power and to hold on to that power. And, and that is when, uh, as we see government and people, uh, the, they, the government itself uh, becomes the means to an end, not, not, uh, or comes the end in itself, I should say, not the means to the end of the common good or to a stronger society, a stronger democracy. Uh, it's the perpetuation of that power in governance. So affirming those values is critical. And I would just offer that as an encouragement to our, our listeners as you look back and you try to muddle through all of the things that happen and digest it, is that we, we've got to come out understanding the challenges that we face in the dynamics and what's happening in the political arena, uh, to see all this flying around from from both sides, from uh, uh, people uh, throughout government, uh, and 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 hold on to these values and try to advocate for those and want to see those reflected, not just in the people that we elect to office, but the manner in which we conduct ourselves when we engage with issues in our communities, in our state, and throughout our country. Thank you for listening to that. We'll come back after a short break and talk about Brexit uh, and a little bit of the implications of that in the United Kingdom. Uh, Stay tuned after the break for more Cogley and Morrow on politics. Tarleton Radio Network is proud to announce our new show, Planetary Overload. You are about to overload. Join co-hosts A.J. Heyer and Colleen Hughes as they explore a new hobby every week. Subscribe to the feed wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the debut episode for an interview with award-winning game designer Steve Jackson and their exploration of tabletop RPGs. Subscribe to the feed wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the debut episode. for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Politics can be confusing, but Coglia Morrow have your back. Follow them on Facebook. Search Cogliamoro on politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogliamoro is a production of the Tarleton Radio Network. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. This is Eric Morrow. I'm in the chair alone today uh, without my co-host, uh, Dr. Cogley. Uh, who's been away at a conference, but uh, he'll be back next week, and we'll be looking to reflect on the New Hampshire primary and all of the the discussion about who's ahead, who's not, who may potentially drop out. Uh, where is Michael Bloomberg in all of this uh, as his strategy uh, continues to move forward toward uh, Super Tuesday? Uh, so we'll we'll be back uh, together next week to be able to address some of that. Uh, but after that, uh, after my monologue there for the first half of the show, if you're still with me, uh, I want to move overseas for just a moment. It's something we've not given much attention to on the show, and that is what is happening with Brexit. So if you're familiar with this, uh, if at least you followed a little bit over the last few years, you know that uh, the United Kingdom has been in a slow process uh, to leave the European Union. Uh, which uh, culminated really in the official uh, exit day, uh, which was January 31st. And so now that that has happened, uh, the the next step in the process uh, is to negotiate a trade deal. So now that the U.K. uh, is not in, uh, will not be uh, equal in that European market in terms of its standing, uh, the U.K. still wants access uh, to its goods and services in the E.U., uh, but there must uh, uh, be some agreement worked out uh, with the EU uh, in order to 
uh, have that happen. If that is not able to be achieved, then there could actually be tariffs on uh, UK goods that are going into the EU, uh, and that w- that would be detrimental very much to the economy of the United Kingdom, the cost of products, uh, goods, and services uh, from the UK. So there, there's a lot more to come on this as it develops. It's been a very contentious process. Uh, one that I saw firsthand uh, in 2015, the year following uh, a vote in Scotland, uh, whether to uh, pursue independence or not, uh, which which actually failed. The, the outcome of the election was to remain uh, in the UK. Uh, I was with a study abroad group of students in Scotland, and we were able to, to learn about many of these issues and try to understand uh, the dynamics that were going on. And that's where a little bit of a focus that I want to give with, with some of the time that we have remaining. Uh, and just quickly to, to note that the, the, the levels of government and understanding the government in Europe uh, is a little bit different than we have here uh, in that the, the European Union, as it has developed over time, initially more, much more focused on economics, much broader issues now. Uh, initially, a lot of emphasis put on environmental issues. Uh, and I say that because you, you have so many countries in close proximity with each other using the same air and water resources, land resources at times. Uh, that the the challenge was the uh, environmental regulation in some countries uh, and the impact that that may have in terms of pollution, of water, air, and so on on other countries. Uh, So environmental issues were were front and center, uh, as well as economic issues that, well, if I can avoid certain regulations environmentally, I can produce this good cheaper. uh, But while I'm polluting, I'm also undermining a a larger market in terms of the exchange of, of goods and services. So so the, the EU over time has really worked to bring about some equity uh, throughout Europe uh, on an economic level and as well as in deal with environmental issues. And that's been to the benefit of many countries, uh, uh, certainly Scotland being one. Uh, last year I was in the, the Czech Republic. Uh, that's another country that has benefited tremendously. And there, and there are many others because of the resources that have been pulled together collectively uh, to help address uh, economic issues, uh, to bring some equity in certain markets and areas uh, uh, throughout throughout Europe. Uh, so the debate now continues in Scotland uh, after the Brexit uh, has occurred and this process going forward uh, regarding re- uh, maintaining or, or achieving EU membership. And so one of the things that we're, we're probably going to see uh, in Scotland, it could be another referendum, uh, but it will be this ongoing discussion uh, with encouragement, really, from the EU. If you look at that, many of the uh, comments that have been made uh, by foreign ministers that are serving in the EU uh, from throughout Europe, uh, looking at uh, Scottish membership, the benefits that are there, uh, certainly it, it's another, it's a level of government. We, we tend to think of it here as local, state, and federal. Uh, there you have, you have a local and state uh, but then, you know, federal would be the UK, but then there's even another level of the European Union, which then again addresses a number of issues such as trade, uh, immigration, uh, natural resources, um, a criminal justice system, uh, and the collaboration uh, throughout Europe. So there's just so many areas that, that are held in common uh, when you move to that level. And a disruption of that uh, really creates challenges for uh, areas uh, and, and, uh, places such as Scotland that have ex- experienced tremendous benefits uh, from being a part of the European Union. So that'll be something to watch going forward. All of that kind of falls into a realm of uh, some some refer to it as a, as neo-nationalism, which uh, that term is used loosely because there's still a national identity. And in fact, Scotland has been one that's been rebirthed over time. Uh, but an, uh, these national identities, some of this goes back to when Turkey was being considered for EU membership. And there was this reaction from throughout Europe of how could uh, a country that is predominantly Muslim, that is non-European, uh, be included in what was considered a European Union, uh, which at at, at kind of at the core of that for at least the general public was a European identity. Now, there's a lot of diversity in that European identity, but now what you're seeing with the leave of the UK uh, 
uh, from the European Union, uh, just independence discussions in Scotland, and other countries that may follow uh, uh, discussions or, or challenges and movements that are going on in Spain and in other countries. Uh, this this type of, of nationalistic or even sub-nationalistic movements uh, that are all about identity. We, we want self-determination. Uh, we, want, we want to go our own direction. We share an identity among the people who live here, at least a dominant identity, and that that feels threatened. Uh, that that was what would was some of the response uh, to the consideration of Turkey's membership. But even now, so with this kind of breakup, uh, or at least the initial breakup of EU of the EU, uh, the another example were the attempts to achieve a constitution for the European Union. Again, something that people reacted to and saying, "Hey, we're giving up." Um, who we are. We're giving up a national identity uh, to then be kind of welded into this this uh, idea of a European community, uh, which certainly exists in name. It, it exists economically. It exists globally. Uh, but it, it, it it's not as powerful as the roots that people have in their own ethnicity or their own uh, national identity, whether ethnicity is involved or not. Uh, one example, I remember the debate as countries began to shift to the euro uh, in Greece uh, to leave behind the drachma, uh, the coin, the, the coinage, the money that had been there for thousands of years to say now, OK, we're giving up a part of our identity to become part of this European community. A huge debate uh, over that and the, and the sense of feeling that, that, a, uh, that's, that a part of the culture was going away. So we, we, I think we'll see more of this. I think we're seeing, though, that the challenges of, of Brexit uh, may uh, prevent other countries, especially larger countries that are uh, can be much more self-sufficient than, say, uh, uh, countries that are coming in, in from Western Europe and, and others that have joined the, the Baltics and so on, uh, that, it, that it will be much more uh, easy for those larger countries to consider this if, the, if they want to, uh, if that, that level of nationalism uh, and the benefits of it. And we still don't know what those will be for the U.K. We, we see some certainly challenges and struggles ahead, uh, but uh, uh, it'll be yet to be determined how those will work out. Before we end the show today, uh, I do want to turn to something that uh, was in uh, the news this past week and, and really based on a report that was issued uh, by the National Center for Homeless Education, uh, which is a technical assistance center of the U.S. Department of Education. And this was the updated uh, information and, and statistics uh, on uh, homeless children and youth. And it was the release of the data from 2017-18 school year, uh, which showed an 11% increase over the previous school year, which was the highest number ever recorded nationally of children and youth that are homeless. Over 1.5 million uh, children and youth are homeless in the United States. Uh, and what we mean by homeless in the way that's defined here, and this is with the collaboration of, of public schools in identifying this, uh, Children and youth are considered homeless if they are staying in shelters, cars, motels, or with other people temporarily due to lack of alternatives. Now, the largest category of this by far are children who are living with someone else, either a, a, another member of the family uh, with a grandparent uh, or in, in foster care uh, that are uh there, there are no other alternatives, and thus there have to the place they have no uh, kind of home, traditional home setting uh, in which to to live, and so they have to to look for alternatives. Uh, what we see from this study, uh, as well from this report, is that the number of homeless students in unsheltered situations, so that's living in cars, you know, in parks, or on the streets, more than doubled between 2016-17 and 2017-2018. So a 104% increase in the number of children that are in unsheltered living uh, situations. The number of homeless uh, students staying in emergency shelters or transitional housing decreased by 2%. The number of homeless uh, children staying in motels increased by 17%. And the number of staying with people temporarily due to lack of alternatives increase by nine percent so we see this as an ongoing problem i mean some of it can be looked at proportionally in terms of population growth uh but it, for me and i know for many people one homeless child is one child too many that's homeless i mean it, it's 
it's it's very sad in, in terms of its long-term impact that it can have on children and youth when they don't have a, an environment in which their basic needs are taken care of, especially shelter, uh, especially uh uh, cooling or warmth, uh, food, uh, clothing, uh, and the care that they need. And really this raises questions about uh, the, n- the negative impact of homelessness, especially on academic achievement over and above poverty. So we know that, that the higher, uh, the, or the more the children and youth in poverty, the greater the impact of that on their academic success and thus their future success in terms of employment and opportunity. You add homelessness to that, uh, and it just makes it uh, even much, much worse. And so some of the things that we see with this uh, in terms of the data, approximately 29% of students experiencing homelessness achieved academic proficiency in reading. So less than one in three uh, have proficiency in reading. Uh, 24% achieve proficiency in mathematics, and 26% achieve proficiency in science. So we're talking about one-fourth to one-third are able to reach levels that are necessary to move forward, uh, to graduate from high school, and even think about uh, secondary uh, education. Graduation and proficiency rates for homeless students are significantly below economically disadvantaged students, uh, thus emphasizing this negative impact. And I think that's that's really where the, where the challenge is, is that the, the dropout rate from high school, the, even the potential to finish high school and move on uh, to a trade school or to a college education, uh, is just not uh, feasible uh, for students if they spend any significant amount of time uh, in a homeless situation. So we look at this and we say, well, what are some of the things that, that we can do uh, to address this? One is just to be aware of the issue, that this is a very significant issue. Uh, there are, are various uh, legislation that's in place and some that needs to be expanded. Uh, a lot of it is looking at it for us on the state and the local level of how it can be addressed, of identifying homelessness. You know, do we do we see children and youth that are in need and are able to try to reach out to them? And do we have alternatives within the community uh, to assist them? Are we working with our public schools uh, to identify this and to help our schools uh, have the kinds of programs? Uh, Because in this kind of situation with homelessness, schools become really uh, the only place in which they find uh, care or help uh, or becomes kind of that that, uh, setting for them that uh, they can at least have some uh, attention uh, to their needs. Uh, so those are some some things given this, that, that seeing the number of homeless and how we can respond to that in our community. And we'll give more attention to this and, and other issues as we go on. I want to thank you for joining us uh, today on Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Uh, we always try to have a guest uh, when we can. That uh, didn't work out this week, but uh, I know uh, trying to make sense of this past week in politics was really my challenge today. Uh, was to try to engage you in looking at uh, some of the ways that we could interpret all of these things that happen and really some of the challenges it's creating in terms of the rhetoric uh, and uh, the, the polarization of politics that we see. So I encourage you to be engaged, to read, to be informed, uh, to be civil, uh, to address issues in a substantive way, uh, and try to make the world a better place around you as we work together for the common good. Thank you for joining us this week on Cogley and Morrow on Politics. This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.